It's Canucks Central Wednesday. Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. The Kintec studio is on the road today. The Kintec studio is at Andrew Sherritt Limited, which Canucks Central is brought to you by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned BC company helping local business since 1892. Yes, we are uh, on location here on East First Avenue at Andrew Sherritt. Uh, Milwaukee has a big, big setup here. There's some hamburgers and some hot dogs. So uh, if you're in the neighborhood, may as well stop by and see what's going on here at Andrew Sherritt Limited and come say hi to us here at Canucks Central. Sad, how you doing? I'm doing good, man. Hanging out. Um, yeah. Happy to be here. Uh, always happy to be out and on the road and uh, potentially meeting up with some uh, some listeners of the program. You know, when uh, when we do Canucks Central, there's um, there's been a large flavor of Tyler Mott content uh, in, in, <laughs> in the Canucks Central sphere. Not recently, but if you go back to uh, the trade deadline and the lead-up to the trade deadline, should they keep Mott? Should they trade Mott? They ended up trading him to the New York Rangers. It was an interesting summer because Mott uh, sat on the sidelines for a while until today when he signs a one-year, $1.35 million contract with the uh, winners of the offseason, the Ottawa Senators getting Tyler Mott. Uh, are you surprised at uh, the deal Tyler Mott ends up signing? He didn't get more. Did you expect term? And um, why Why weren't the Canucks in on Tyler Mott? As far as the Canucks are concerned, I just think that uh, ship sailed for them. And, you know, you look at Mikheyev, who they brought in, and, and the player types they've already uh, brought into this team. I just think... It got to the point where their budget was already spent on that type of player because I look at Mikheyev as a significant upgrade on a Tyler Mott type of player, has more ability and, and things that he can do. They brought Dakota Joshua in to provide this sandpaper grit extra forward that can push guys and all that sort of stuff. And, and the other guy they signed was a right-handed centerman who they needed, and that was Curtis Lazar. So you looked at the player types, and they're essentially capped out as it is. And if you need to add anything, it's probably on the back end. I just think for Vancouver, when they already made their moves, that ship for them already sailed. As far as Mod is concerned, I'm not surprised today when we're sitting here and I see the number at 1.35. I was surprised, however, that he lasted over the first month of free agency. Like I yeah. thought he'd be the type of player that maybe doesn't sign the first day or the second day, but the third day they'll see value and he probably signs a relatively good two or three year contract. I thought somebody might give him, say, you know, one point seven five million or close to two million for a couple of years and that not happening was a surprise. We sort of had this conversation with Frank Saravalli um in the lead up to the trade deadline of you know, what's Tyler Mott's value and then after the trade deadline he gets traded for a fourth round pick. And everybody in Vancouver, myself included, said, really, like that's all you could get for Tyler Mott? Um, I guess the league kind of told us how they feel about Mott, who is, yes, a strong fourth-line player in this league, yes, Mm -hmm. a good penalty killer, does bring some elements, has a little bit of scoring touch relative to being a fourth-liner. So, like, brings some good things, but the league really sort of told us how they value Tyler Mott in this whole process. Uh, It seems like something that I feel the Canucks 
you know, you think back on it, you wonder what the Canucks talked about with Mott before trading him, what that contract might have looked like, because I, I can't imagine it's too dissimilar to what Mott ends up signing here. Well, I mean, I think when I look at Mott's game, what what are the reasons why teams would not be as high on him? I think one reason would be the fact that he has been injury he's injury prone. He's been injured a lot. He's not the biggest player. And even though he scores a little bit, his numbers at no point have been impressive. And even his, his, his underlying numbers at even strength have gone from being bad to okay to, or, you know, like they've never been great. What he has shown is a great ability on the PK, and that in itself is valuable. But in the league, it seems like a guy who's a bit smaller, a guy who does get injured, and a guy whose greatest talent is being on the PK is not somebody that really moves the needle for NHL teams. The fourth-round pick, I think yeah. there was a lot of evidence into what the market was for him, like you kind of alluded to there. And just seeing what happened in free agency just kind of shows that type of player, even though they're valuable for you when you have them on your squad, there's a there's a real ceiling to what they can provide, and when the cap is as congested as it is, and there's so little wiggle room around the league, can teams actually afford to pay him two million, two million or so? Like, I I don't think that makes any sense. It's uh, when I think about it from a Canucks perspective, like would you rather pay Tyler Mott or Jason Dickinson? Well, I, I'd much rather pay Tyler Mott. Yeah, but your commitment was already made to Jason yeah. Dickinson. I mean. I can understand the argument of, hey, buy out Dickinson and sign Tyler Mott, but how how much are you really improving your game? And the other aspect of it is you're spending more money again. Yeah. So if, if you're buying him out, there's a bit of a cap hit this year, bigger cap hit next season, you sign Tyler Mott to a one-year deal or two-year deal, so you're, you're just throwing more money away to bring another fourth liner in. And, and as much as Mott is a better, I think, probably better overall than Jason Dickinson, how much better are we talking about? Yeah. Like, he's probably a slightly better penalty killer. At even strength, there isn't much difference nope. in what they provide. Scoring-wise, Ma can score a bit more. But is it worth buying that player out to bring him back? I just I just don't think thing that moves the needle enough. It's, it's really rearranging the deck chairs to bring a guy back who's a fan favorite. And I don't think that makes sense. It's uh, it, it was clear this offseason, like, the Canucks didn't want to spend to add uh, bottom bottom of the lineup type players and all due respect to Mott, but that's what he is. And he's a good one, but they spent yes, three years, but a million dollars per season on Curtis Lazar, a contract that is entirely variable. If it does go sideways, Dakota Joshua comes in, what league minimum it was nothing. Um, they spent on Mikheyev, but if they were going to bring in somebody to play in the bottom six, it was going to be less than a million dollars. Yeah. That's essentially how they played out this offseason, and it's hard to disagree with that sort of strategy for this team. They, you know, they let they let go of Tyler Mott, they let go of um, Yuho Lamico, they let go of, of Matthew Highmore. All guys, you know, th- those three specifically had success as a line, but uh, should you really be extending to? bring back uh you know your fourth line players and i i think that's a conversation we've long had here in vancouver and it's one that this new management group i think has shown their hand that they're just they're not going to fall in love with players that they don't see as part of the core of this roster yeah well i mean and especially guys who don't move the needle as much you yeah. know I mean? to your point and that's essentially a guy who's not a core player and I think Mott is a player that they made a contract offer to ahead of 
uh, the trade deadline, or at least had some discussions, if not making any formal offers. And I think Vancouver is probably a lot more in line with what he signed with in, in Ottawa in terms of what they were willing to do to keep Tyler Mott. But for him, I think, you know, what I find interesting is, did he get advice mm-hmm. that that was bad advice? Did he turn down more money initially and now he's selling for one-year deal? I mean, the word on Evan Rodriguez is that he was offered a three-year deal worth $10 million earlier in free agency, turned that down, and, well, it doesn't look as great when you sign a one-year deal worth $2 million with the Colorado Avalanche. So I wonder if some of that came into play with Tyler Mott at, at any point, if he turned it down waiting for something more and, you know, he, he's kept back into a corner, signed that $1.35 million contract. But also when you look at Vancouver's team, the one thing I like about Jason Dickinson, he can, in theory, play center if need be. Yeah, He's not a guy who's going to be able to do that, but there is more versatility to his game. So if you look at the Canucks roster, and, and this is something we talked about yesterday, if anything, I think the Canucks should be looking to sign another skilled forward for depth as opposed to a Tyler Mott player. If they need anything, it's a another chase-on type who comes in on a PTO in case somebody gets injured, in case Niels Hoaglander struggles, and the management team and, and Bruce Boudreau decide he should start off in Abbotsford. Well, all of a sudden, you need a 13 forward. And you don't have guys that can provide a little bit of skill when somebody gets injured. So that's what I think this team needs more of as opposed to another Tyler Mott as we speak with the roster being built the way it is. Uh, We did have that discussion on yesterday's podcast. You can check that out. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Subscribe. That way you never miss an edition of Canuck Central. I would have loved to have seen Tyler Mott back with the Vancouver Canucks, but yeah, you go through the logic of it all, and it just doesn't add up with where the Canucks roster is currently at. He's now an Ottawa Senator on a one-year deal, $1.35 million. One of the things we wanted to focus on as we get closer to the start of training camp and the start of the season, the Pacific Division has seen a lot of turnover player-wise, and the Canucks have certainly upgraded their roster to a certain extent. We saw how much the Flames had to do after they lost Matthew Kachuk and Johnny Gaudreau. But what were some of the best moves in the Pacific Division this offseason. How do the Canucks factor in to that conversation with what they did with Mikheyev, Lazar, and the other small moves that they made? Certainly made the biggest moves, the biggest splashes. They also had the biggest losses of the offseason with Huberdeau, Uyghur, uh, and Kadri coming in, but Kachuk and, of course, Johnny Gaudreau both leaving. Did the Flames make the best moves in the Pacific Division of the offseason, or did they just sort of replace what they already had, Sat? I think they allowed themselves to I, I, they allowed themselves to hold serve. You know right. what I mean? I think that's what they were allowed to do. They, they were able to do so. I don't think Calgary Which is a tough thing to do when you lose players of the caliber that they did. So super eventful offseason for them. and They made a lot of things happen. Very exciting. I mean, they stole all the headlines for much of the summer and all that sort of stuff. But are they significantly better than they were last season? I mean, honestly, I think they're a push because they're not as good off. They're not as good up front losing Goudreau and Kachuk and no. getting Kadri and um, Huberto, even though they're two very good players. And Uyghur is a clear upgrade, though, on Gerbranson. You could, I guess you could make the argument that the pieces might fit better and they could be better as a team, and that upgrade on back end is, a bigger, is, a, is more significant than a downgrade on, on the forward group. And I can buy into that argument, but we're not talking about a significant improvement. 
It's like a marginal improvement if you want to make that argument for Cal- the Calgary Flames. But they were the busiest team, without a doubt, in the division. So what happened to the Flames in, in the series against the Oilers? You know, they lose Tanev. Yeah. And the drop-off from Tanev to Goodbranson was too much for them to overcome. You know, how many times in that series against Edmonton did we see Drysaddle and McDavid be yeah. able to take advantage of Zadorov, of Goodbranson. It was nonstop. You know, and Uyghur is going to be able to provide right. a very similar player to Chris Tanev and a little bit more offensively as well. And the one thing Kadri does do, he does solidify, even though they're not as good top six, I think he solidifies them down the middle, makes them a better two-way team down the middle. And in the playoffs, matchup-wise, that could help you out a bit more. So to that point, in the regular season, I don't think they're significantly better. But those pieces could help them have more success in the postseason. Stronger down the middle and having that extra defenseman that can help you in case of injuries. I also think, you know, um, Matthew Kachuk. You know, the one thing about Huberdeau that uh, as, as good as an offensive player that he is, he's not going to, uh, you know, he's, not gonna, he's just not going to be as good defensively as a guy like Kachuk was, you know. And that line, Lindholm, Kachuk, Goudreau was one of the best in the league because not only did they score a ton, but they didn't give up much going back the other way. And traditionally in Huberdeau's career, he can score a ton, but he will give some of it back. I wonder how that affects the Flames. I wonder how Daryl Sutter finds ways to paper over that. But I don't view the team. I don't view the Flames as a team that's better than they were a year ago, even after all the moves that they made. And sure, you know, they may still be a playoff team. They should still be a playoff team. But when you think about this from a long-term perspective, and we've had that conversation with, you know, what it means long-term, the Canucks signing JT Miller and committing that money to another older player, well, the same thing applies here with Kadri and Huberdeau. The Flames are saying, this is our window. We've got to push. We've got to make sure that we stay and and try to, to force this through over the next couple of years. But, you know, how are those contracts going to age? How is that going to look for the Flames four or five years from now when Kadri and Huberdeau are beyond their primes and on these still massive, massive contracts? That's a huge question mark that the Flames will have to answer. Absolutely. I I know somebody's asking, are you overlooking their departures, uh, didn't want to stay? The point isn't about why the Flames did what they did. The question is a simple one. Are they better than they were last season? And how yeah. does that rank against the Vancouver Canucks? And <laughs> how does it work in the division as a whole? I mean, I think that's the question. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, it's not about, you know, what the Flames, why the Flames did what they did and whether it's their fault or not. It's the reality of what does it mean for their squad in relation to the division. And to your point, I think they're better in the postseason. But I'm not sure that changes much as far as their standing in the regular season compared to where they were last year. I think people are going to be surprised at the move that I think was uh, the best in the Pacific Division, but we won't get to it just yet. The Edmonton Oilers, we talked about this yesterday a little bit with Daniel Nugent Bowman, but they did not do a ton this offseason. Their big acquisition was Jack Campbell. They feel like that solidified their goaltending position. I I uh, I have my doubts, you know. I do. I I, I mean, I, I mean, what, what are you worried about with Edmonton? They're going to be a playoff team. I I just I, I don't see Jack Campbell as the answer to fixing their goaltending issues. Is it better, as good, or better than what they had last year? Probably a. It's probably a push for me. But I mean, if it that's has a, the potential to be better, but 
Sure, but if it's a push, they're a hundred some point team, yeah. and they're probably winning the division. They're in in line to be one of the top two teams in a division. So you're right. I don't know if they're better than they were last year, but they were able to hold serve to a big degree. I do believe though, losing Duncan Keith. Um, and listen, I didn't think he was great. I, you can see, you could see his game has slipped. But for that team, like they haven't really replaced him. Ryan yeah. Murray, I suppose, is that guy. What they're banking on is that Brett Kulak can play that role after he got acquired the deadline, and and maybe he's the guy that does it, and, and he can do it a bit better, and maybe that's how you you get through. But um, he really helped some of the young defensemen. And I wonder if those guys are still ready. Like when I watch Broberg, I don't think he's ready yet. Bouchard, yeah. good offensively, defensively, there's some issues. So I'm I'm just not sure they're better defensively. Um, you know, Keith's deficiencies, they got exposed at different points of the year, sure. In the playoffs, they didn't really get exposed until they played the Colorado Avalanche. And to a certain extent against the LA Kings as well, who are a very fast team. The Kings made arguably one of the bigger splashes beyond what Calgary did with the Kevin Fiala move. Haven't done a ton else. They're essentially banking on adding Fiala to this roster and a bunch of internal improvements from guys like Byfield and the litany of young players that they have on that roster. And one thing, they, they played really well as a team defensively last year, and you saw Sean Dursey play well. You saw Mikey Anderson, who signed a nice cheap contract coming back, Was that play the Kevin well. LeBanc deal on defense? Like <laughs> maybe, one million bucks for that guy? What the heck's going on Yeah, there? maybe it is. It might be uh, help us out now and we help you out later. Yeah. Um, and then Drew Doughty got hurt, but he was he was playing well when he got when he was there. But I wonder about their defense. They didn't do anything to improve the defense. No. So and sometimes those young teams, a young defenseman, you don't really add much to it. It's it can be a bit touch and go the next year. So I'm just not sure defensively they're going to be able to replicate how good they were as a team this past season. And they're really banking on their young players taking a step. One one thing, you know what they remind me of, Dan? The 2010 LA Kings, where who made the playoffs, pushed the Canucks in the first round. Canucks came back being down 2-1 and won in six games. The next year, they missed the playoffs. And then in 2012... Uh, you know, they they uh, they made the trades too. They had Richards and, and they had all those guys and Carter that they brought in. And things went, went sideways. They fired the coach and then they caught lightning in a bottle and then they went on a big run. I wouldn't be surprised if the Kings take a slight step back this season. But then they're going to be really ready to, to fly in two years' time. And sometimes those young teams, they go through those phases. and Progression isn't always linear. Yeah. So I wonder about that with the LA Kings. But undoubtedly, adding Kevin Fiala, and they've added a, a legitimate goal scorer to the team, and, and that's a significant improvement. The the speed of the team is what is most frightening. But you know, I I just don't I don't love Fiala that much. Now I know he had over eighty points last year, was on fire to end the season with the Minnesota Wild, completely disappeared in the playoffs. Completely disappeared in the playoffs. I just I don't know. I don't I don't view Fiala as that kind of guy. I wouldn't have given him uh, he's not the guy I would chase to to pay eight million bucks. is uh, is essentially what I'm saying. I don't I don't view that as the number one, the best move in the Pacific Division, even if it was at least one of the bigger ones on paper. The Golden Knights. Phil Kessel was their big move. I I have a lot of questions about the Vegas Golden Knights. It seems like we're just banking on the Golden Knights to be an awesome team. Sat. Hey, I, I I like Jack Eichel as much as everybody else, but you can't just like lose Max Pacioretty and Evgeny Dadanov and expect that offense to just magically show back up. 
by adding a veteran Phil Kessel. Yeah. You know, like that's that's a significant chunk of offense that is just disappeared from their lineup. Yeah, I mean, and you have the Leonard situation in goal. You have the downgrade from Pacioretty to Kessel. Um, I will say one thing they did well was bring back some other, like Brett Howden signed a nice deal to come back, and you know they got Nicholas Ross signed to a deal. I think they did a good job signing some of their you know important players that are role support supporting cast guys for them, but. That team looks to be in a lot of trouble this year. I guess they got Aiden Hill to come in, so they have Aiden Hill and Logan Thompson and Lauren Brossois, so yeah. maybe they feel like they can piece it together uh, goalie-wise for a few years. But for, for the rest of the season... But I have a lot of concerns about that Vegas team. And the way they played offensively and stuff like that. I, I mean, Cassidy, I'm sure, is going to have them be motivated a bit more and be a, a lot more excited when they get out there and play. But I just don't see them being a team that has the same strength they've had in previous years. Cassidy was also, um, you know, we're going to talk to Fluto Shinzawa an hour or two, who had a really fascinating piece with Jim Montgomery, um, talking about, you know, how Montgomery plans to make the Bruins more efficient on offense. And he talks about some of their deficiencies, uh, settle for volume rather than uh, quality shots when Cassidy was, was the coach of the Bruins. And that was a similar problem that Vegas had with Pete DeBoer. So we'll see how that plays out. The, the move that I view as the number one move, the best move in the Pacific Division, the biggest and strongest move of the offseason – Came from the Seattle Kraken with Oliver Bjorkstrand. I like Bjorkstrand's a really strong player. They got him for basically nothing. A salary cap dump by the Columbus Blue Jackets after they landed Johnny Gaudreau. But you know, I I still don't love Seattle as a team, but I'm not gonna, you know, downgrade a move that I think really helps them as a group when I still have questions about where their team is ultimately headed. I don't, he's a really good player and one of the best moves of the offseason, period, not just in the Pacific Division. I think the the Kraken are the team in the division who improved themselves the most, yeah. which isn't the hardest thing to do because you're so low. So, yeah. I mean, you know, you're a bad team. It's, it's a lot easier for you to improve. And they added two legitimate top six forwards. And Andre Burakovsky as well. I mean, listen, we can say that is that worth the money over $5 million? And I can look at their cap situation, but they added two legitimate top six fours with speed to their team. Yeah. And one thing they were lacking last year was that finishing, and they were lacking guys that could, you know, really push the pace offensively. They they've had players who've really struggled after getting paid. Jaden Schwartz is one guy who was not living up to the money. Other players have struggled as well since Always getting paid. Hurt. And I think but getting a couple of speedy players who have a little bit of skill will help their transition games, helps their defensemen a little bit. They're still a team that's a ways away, but those two additions are significant additions. And, you know, if those guys do play up to their potential, the Kraken won't be, a, you know, a welcome mat as much as they were this past year. Yeah, Bjorkstrand's a really interesting player. I really like that move. Uh, for the Seattle Kraken. Um, you know, the Ducks, the John Klingberg one is easy to love. One year, $7 million bucks probably helps them get another first-round pick at the deadline. Hard to dislike that. Sharks did a lot of things around the edges that are sort of interesting but didn't really have cap space to do anything significant, and they're likely headed into a bit of a reset here over the next little while. And that leaves the Canucks with Ilya Mikheyev and Andre Kuzmenko. Now, Kuzmenko could end up being the best move of in the division, you know, if he really hits on the one-year entry-level contract he signed. But 
I think Mikheyev does have a lot of potential to really impact the way the Canucks play. And if you're thinking of best-case scenario with Ilya Mikheyev, there is potential. Like, I don't think of it just from his stats, but how he's able to affect the way the Canucks are able to deploy their roster, I think, helps this in theory, helps the organization more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of goes back. I mean, it's the same argument you can make for the Calgary Flames mm-hmm. to some degree. Now, Vancouver did improve, undoubtedly. I mean, yeah. you're adding Mikheyev to the roster. You're adding, we'll see what Kuzmenko does. You get a right-handed centerman. They've improved. The question is, how significant is that improvement? And does it help unlock other things for this team? But going through this exercise, and we spent so much time talking about that, right? Like how Mikheyev fits in, and he's the type of player this team has been lacking, and getting another two-way player with speed that can, you know, help really your possession game as well and win your matchups consistently. If you add that to a team that has offensive skills, it just takes your squad to another level, especially if he, if he fits in. And Lazar, if he can you know, steady your fourth line and then now you have four lines that never have any issues, well, it just changes the ability that you have shift in and shift out to keep your head above water. And I think those improvements can help the team, to your point, take that other step up. But I think what it shows when you go through this exercise and we look at where Vancouver's at, what they've done, what the other teams in the division have done, why should you not expect this team to finish in the top three in the division? Like, you know, it, it comes down to the Kings. Yeah. It comes down to the Golden Knights. We can sit here and say Edmonton and Calgary, maybe slightly ahead of Vancouver. No, slightly they're ahead of Vancouver, and they're in their own class type of deal. But if something goes sideways there, do they come back to the pack slightly? Vancouver's got to beat out Vegas and L.A. to finish third in the division. And I think when you look at how the teams have improved or not improved. I mean, Vegas isn't as good as last year. The Kings are a bit better. Vancouver's a bit better. They're in the same class. There, there are ways that the Canucks can have a really successful season, even if they still have questions long-term about how they really make this roster click. But, you know, nobody expected Calgary to be the dominant force that they were going into last season. Um, yeah. Do the Canucks have that sort of potential for this upcoming year? I mean, I'd I love to see it. I mean, who wouldn't love to see this team not only exceed expectations but become a great team all of a sudden? The the back end just doesn't feel good enough. Yeah, and and we've. I think you and I have really pushed back on the notion this is a horrible blue line. I think people people make it seem a lot worse than it actually is. I mean, you do have Quinn Hughes, and and even though we don't like the Oliver Ekman Larson contract, and you can look back at the trade and all that sort of stuff, he still played at a top four level last year by every metric you broke down. He played as 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 a top four defenseman. So they have two top four defensemen and one who's elite. So I don't think it's as bad as people make it out to be, but there is a real ceiling to your team's potential when you're short at least one top four defenseman. Now, one thing can happen. Somebody could emerge. Is that Rathbone? Is, is that Hughes playing on the right side? Dermott gets unlocked playing the left side and with Myers or whatever it is. Like, Is that going to be something that you can do potentially? So... That's kind of what I wonder about. You know what I mean? So those are the types of things. I just think it's unlikely for this team to be able to take that step this year defensively to to not only be a team that makes the playoffs, but as a team that is really viewed as a Stanley Cup contender. Because we looked at Calgary. people, people, I didn't like Calgary as much because I saw some flaws in their team, but they were legitimately viewed as a Cup contender heading into the postseason. It's uh, Canuck Central. Uh, the Kintec studio is on the road today here at Andrew Sherritt Limited. Together with Milwaukee, Andrew Sherritt is hosting a series of sales events across BC. Come check out their products with Milwaukee reps, get exclusive one-day deals, and enjoy a barbecue. Plus, every purchase enters you 
into a draw for either an M18 Fuel 2 tool, combo kit, hammer drill, and impact driver, or an M18 Fuel power head string trimmer. Canuck Central back with Kevin Woodley next on Sportsnet 650. It's Canuck Central. We are taking the Kintec Studio on the road. We are live from the Kintec Studio on the road here at Andrew Sherritt Limited. Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintec.com. Net. This hour of Canuck Central is brought to you by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned BC company, helping local business since 1892, and we are here at Andrew Sherritt Limited on East First Avenue, just by the highway here, Highway 1. And uh, going to get us some uh, some hamburgers maybe uh, after the show as uh, I see a lot of the customers grabbing a few, getting me hungry as we get closer to lunchtime. But uh, focus still here on Andrew Sherritt. They have Milwaukee set up for you to come up. There's uh, daytime sales going on, so you can check it out here at Andrew Sherritt Limited. A lot of reaction uh, from our first segment on uh, Tyler Mott on what else happened around the Pacific Division this from uh, Nate and Comox, 0% Kuzmenko is a better addition than Fiala as the best Pacific Division ad. Um, I said Kuzmenko has potential to be a big ad relative to the contract that he signed, which is essentially it's a one year free deal. for a the Vancouver Canucks. Yes. Fiala came in on a very expensive contract and... Uh, a big uh, acquisition cost as well with a first-round pick and Brock Faber going to the Minnesota Wild. So yeah, if you're taking those factors into account, Kuzmenko has potential to be a good ad, a strong ad for basically free compared to some others around the division. That was the point I was trying to make. But I get it. Fiala is definitely going to score more points than Andre Kuzmenko yeah. this year. That is very likely, or else something has gone really wrong for Kevin Fiala as a first-line player for the L.A. Kings. Uh, we have Kevin Woodley on the line, our next guest. He joins us every Wednesday here on the program. What's happening, Woodley? Not much. Are you guys at, like, uh, did I hear right? You're at, uh, it has to do with plumbing, right, Andrew Sherritt? <laughs> Absolutely. We're here at Andrew Sherritt Limited. You know, Sat and I are big-time uh, big handy, handymen, so we do, mm-hmm. we, we do a lot of that stuff around the house. Hey, speak for yourself. I actually uh, I you know, got some stuff done this summer. I was actually was going to ask, like, you know, I, again, I've never played with Reach, so I was, you know, we've got this Canucks Autism Network term, tournament coming up in November. Um, I didn't know if maybe he was picking up some new supplies based on what I've heard him as a hockey player. <laughs> uh, He's okay. trying not to spring as many leaks on the ice. That stuff's coming yeah. in. Yeah, F- fair, fair uh, enough. I'll be the one doing um, the leaking in goal. I just didn't know if he was a former. <laughs> that. That's what I hear. Just don't don't expect me to defend very well with all these chirps here, Woodley. Does anybody defend well in beer league or these things? Come on, let's be realistic. That's uh, that's probably fair. Uh, so we've been talking a lot about the Pacific Division and you know, some of the moves that were made. I, yep. I know a lot of people still are, you know, high on Vegas, and you know they've been a playoff team every year of their existence outside of last year, but. Now, given the injury situation and everything else, people, it, it just seems, are chalking them up 
for a bounce back. However, you know, I look at their goaltending situation, Kevin, and I'm like, can we really count on a bounce back when they have so many question marks between the pipes? Okay, so when we're going to get into question marks between the pipes in the Pacific Division, I'll start with Vegas, but make sure we come back to Edmonton, boys, before we're done here. Um, okay. In terms of the Golden Knights, yeah, like, honestly, there are a lot of question marks there, and I think part of the answer is going to be less about the goalies themselves and about what goes on in front of them, because as good as the defensemen were on paper for Vegas when healthy last year, the defense, in terms of style of play and what they gave up, you know, and I've said this a lot, just wasn't really good under Pete DeBoer for several years. They leaned heavily on their goaltender to make a lot of high-danger saves. And um, the environment in Boston under Bruce Cassidy was certainly a lot more goalie-friendly. Now, uh, how much of that is personnel? How much of that is systems and coaching and buy-in? I guess time will tell. Obviously, it doesn't hurt. Uh, in Boston when Bruce Cassidy has his standard setter uh, up front, you know, basically the guy they should rename the Selkie Trophy after in Patrice Bergeron, right? Like you tend to get a lot of buy-in when he is leading the way for you. So um, that's part of the equation, though, because they are a team that had a reputation for defending that far exceeded their reality. And so does that improve under Bruce Cassidy? As for the goalies themselves, you know, Logan Thompson actually was really, really good. The problem is sample size and whether he can continue that, whether he can pick up where he left off. Like, his adjusted numbers, for all the attention that Laner got and the decision to sort of pull Laner and ultimately him pulling the shoot after that, um, Logan Thompson, uh, when he came in late in the season, was outplaying him statistically by a significant margin. Now, assuming that that can carry over into a number one role, that's a big leap. Uh, teams are going to be paying more attention to him in terms of pre-scout, uh, trying to pick apart and break down the details of his game and attack his weaknesses, something that probably didn't happen as little as he played last season and because he never really got into the playoffs. Um, but this is a guy who, um, you know, was, uh, was, would have been the starter for Canada at the World Championships if he didn't get a concussion early in the play So, like, I actually think Logan Thompson – is better than maybe a lot of people are giving him credit for. Behind him, there's a lot of question marks, especially if Laurent Brossois isn't ready to go early. Um, Aiden Hill, though, like, I'm curious to see what happens there. This may be a bit of a project. When you look at the, the success that Sean Burke has had as a goalie coach, especially in Arizona, Benoit Lair disciple, goal line out mentality, like big body simplified uh, positional game, like Aiden Hill might fit into that like really nicely for Sean Burke. And a lot of people, again, we forget of all the moves the Golden Knights made, uh, luring Sean Burke back into a coaching role uh, is a significant one. Sean was much ballyhooed as a goalie coach, Had could have worked several times before this as a goalie coach after he left that role in Arizona, but really, really wanted to be in a management role and had some opportunities to do that in Montreal. Getting him back in the fold and on the ice as a goalie coach could pay dividends, and I think the acquisition of Aiden Hill is kind of one of those examples of a goalie who may perfectly fit what he wants to teach. And he had a lot of success working with guys that looked like Aiden Hill and, and sort of had that physical makeup 
when he was with Arizona. So I'm not as quick to write off their goaltending, uh, but clearly, you know, Robin Lehner, first third of last season, played at a Vesna level in part because they leaned on him so heavily because the defense was so poor. So if you could get a steadier defensive play in front of their goaltenders, I think it becomes less of a question mark than it was under Pete DeBoer. Well, and, you know, so, so we started looking at, you know, all these teams and how they kind of rank wise. I mean, look look at Edmonton, you look at Vegas, look at Vancouver, and even Calgary with Dan Vladar being the backup. Can you reel in Markstrom a little bit more? It seems like a lot more question marks goalie-wise in this division. And even Vancouver, I mean, the question is Spencer Martin and Colin Dealey. Do you get enough out of those two guys who allow Demko not to play too much? So, so I do think this, this division does have a lot of question marks still in goaltending. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and I wanted to come back to Edmonton, not to sort of pull it back towards there, but, you know, like, for all the questions mm-hmm. that we have about Spencer Martin and Colin Delia, like, they're going to be, you know, rolling in with Stuart Skinner in his first full season in the NHL. Now, I believe Stuart Skinner's an NHL goaltender, but how much are you going to have to lean on him given, you know, Jack Campbell's injury history over the past couple of years, the limited games played, and, you know, frankly, when you do play him a lot, the struggles with consistency. Um you know, I heard you guys earlier as I as I was driving in to pick something up, talking about you know asking, is this a wash for Edmonton going from Mike Smith and Miko Koskinen to Jack Campbell? And you could make some arguments in terms of, you know, like like let's be honest, when it failed for Mike Smith, it failed spectacularly. Um, but on the whole, when he was healthy, and clearly that was a big if and that was a problem. But when he was healthy, his performances, and frankly Miko Koskinen's performances at least relative to environment, were far better than Jack Campbell's relative to the environment in Toronto. And I don't know that the Oilers, given some of the other question marks you guys addressed in the last segment, talking about the back end and the changes there, I thought they took it defensively after the coaching change, which is ironic given Dave Tibbetts reputation as a defensive coach. They were better under Woodcroft, but with the personnel changes, can they take another step defensively? And if they don't, you know, again, like Jack Campbell got five times five and he grades out in the low to mid 30s each of the past two seasons in terms of adjusted save percentage. And within last season, he had the first third of the season where he was a Vesna worthy performance. Like he was legit. As good as they were defensively, he was even better and, and probably actually had his best when they were a little leaky and picking up for them. But he also had a six-week stretch from January to mid-February where he was undoubtedly, statistically, the worst goaltender in the National Hockey League. And so, no, it's a, it's, you know, it was a prize signing. It was a coveted signing. But I think a lot of the goaltending signings this summer were, you know, sort of relative to the thinness of the market. And as much as he was one of the top two options, in the other year, I'm not sure if the case. Yeah, it was, um, you know, I knew Jack Campbell was going to get the money from somewhere, uh, and it, it looked like Edmonton was, was all over it. But I I have just as many questions about it as as you do. Now, as far as the Canucks go, you know, um, Arthur Silovs is going to take over at the, the Young Stars. He's going to he's gonna be the guy at, at the Young Stars. Uh, Mikey has arrived finally, Mikey DiPietro. Um what does this say, if anything, to you about the Canucks' depth chart in goal right now? Yeah, it's funny because I, I was trying to dig in and see whether Mikey was even eligible to go to it. Um, you know, I certainly think that sort of even if he was, 
Um, if he wasn't, then we don't want to read too much into this. If he was, like, hey, like, this is this, – uh, yeah, he arrived late. My understanding, though, is he had to go to a rookie orientation um, weekend in, in, I believe, somewhere – it might have even been North Carolina, so that's one of the things that delayed his arrival. Listen, I've watched his first couple of days on the ice. Uh, they put him in a group with Demko so that he was down at the end working with Ian for the most part. Uh, the first couple of mornings, and he looked really good. Uh, him a little bit afterwards. Seems to be in terms of his. We're gonna have to reconnect with forward. you, uh, Kevin. Uh, your, your your phone just cutting out there a little bit. Uh, seemed like a, a really interesting point there he was about to make on Mikey Di Pietro. I know, I know. But uh, but we'll we'll have to reconnect and, and get a get a cleaner phone line. Uh, Mikey is twenty three, um, so and and. There are a couple of 24-year-olds playing at the Young Stars, so I don't see why he wouldn't be uh, eligible to play at the Young Stars this tournament uh, this weekend if they had wanted him to. Do we have uh, Kevin Woodley back? I guess not. All right, we'll we'll get him back up here in a second. But, you know, I I think it's interesting looking at um, just the goaltending stuff we were talking about overall um, in the division and and how many question marks exist, and especially with the backup goaltenders. And... Especially for Vancouver, who has some options here, like this should be an opportunity for Mikey DiPietro to still fight for a spot. Like he can still outplay Arthur Silovs and be the starting goalie in Abbotsford. And given the depth that's needed for organizations, that opportunity exists as long as he he's still willing to fight for it. Uh, let's bring back Kevin Woodley into the conversation. Uh, so you were making uh, you 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 said you talked to to Mikey DiPietro this week. Yeah, just a little bit of back and forth. I shouldn't, uh, it should be clear because uh, it was just more of a text conversation after his first day, after watching his first day at camp there. And I just feel like his mindset, um, you know, he's, he's not dwelling at all on what happened uh, over the past couple of seasons. He seems to have a really fresh approach to it, which, I mean, listen, like this can, this can be a process. I can't tell you how many goalies I talked to over the years. I mean, Eric Comrie. Eric Comrie's finally getting a shot as a number one goaltender this year in Buffalo after a lot of years where I figured he was an NHL goalie and didn't get the opportunity to stick. Um, sometimes it takes time, and sometimes that is mindset. Sometimes we, we heard it from Elias Pettersson yesterday. Sometimes you focus on the wrong things, and I'm not saying that, that that's exactly what happened to, to Mikey over the past couple of years, but you know, it sounds like you know maybe in his mind, there were times he was looking at the wrong things or focused on the wrong things. I know the organization felt like he didn't get past the year that he got screwed, you know, um, and maybe dwelled on it a little bit too much rather than moving on last season. But it's, yeah, I liked what I saw in his game, um, you know, first couple of days. And he just looks like a guy who, you know, frankly, he looks more like Mikey DiPietro to me. And um, it feels like in, in that back and forth, like that's what he feels like too. And so you hit the reset button. Uh, as much as everyone wanted to have him in the ECHL and fifth on the depth chart to start, and as much as that looks like where he may be, there's an opportunity here. We said that from the beginning. There will be a chance to move up that ladder, um, and he just seems like he's in a really good spot to do it. And and maybe more to the point, if it doesn't happen right away, uh, he, he sounds like a guy who's in a better spot to maybe not dwell on that and then just keep pushing forward, keep pushing forward. And And again, it sounds like silly and obvious and oversimplification, but in a position that's as much mental as it is physical, um, you know, we talk a lot about staying in the moment as goaltenders. If you're dwelling on the past at all, you're not, you're not prepared uh, for what's going to happen next. And that's, 
it's the easiest thing to do in goaltending, or it's the easiest thing to say and the hardest thing to do, and, and sometimes you have to go through ups and downs to get there. It just sounds like he's there now. Uh, proof will be in the pudding, but I certainly liked what I heard and liked what I saw the first couple of days back at camp. Uh, and, and I like the fact that they put him with Demko early and put him out there with Ian Clark early, and they're keeping him with that group rather than sending him to the Young Stars game. It gives him, you know, sort of shows that, yes, you've done some things for us over the years here. They know he can play in the American Hockey League. Um, you know, in my understanding, talking to other teams that were interested in him, some of what would have been going back, there would have been question marks. So uh, he'll have that opportunity, I think, early on, and it's up to him to make the most of it. Well, and Kevin, moving away from goaltending a little bit, but staying with the Canucks, I mean, you've been at Burnaby Eight Rinks, and you've been watching, um, you know, the Canucks do the informal skates and everything like that. I mean, and keeping an eye on the guys who've been coming in. I mean, we saw the Russians be here well ahead of time. Kuzmenko and Mikheyev have been skating here for weeks on end. Pedersen finally arrived. Horvat and, and Miller were kind of, you know, the latest ones to arrive as far as the leadership group goes. How early should guys be arriving when it comes to training camp? And how much does that sort of stuff really matter in the big picture? I mean, I guess you don't want to read too much into it. And I know there were some people on the management side that were maybe a little disappointed. The whole group wasn't here right out of the sort of coming out of Labor Day weekend. But I think this is a, you know, and you do see some cities where, and maybe because some of that comes from being from Pittsburgh where, you know, maybe guys stay there or get there earlier. And when your leadership group arrives early, everyone tends to follow. So the fact that it was just the goalies and that core group of Russians for so long, I think maybe raised a few eyebrows internally. But the reality, guys, is this is such a strange summer because the guys, the, the players haven't had regular summers for, for so long, right? And I've talked to a number of goalies and they're like, oh, my God, this was the summer of weddings, right? Because like, they're like, you know, like everybody that got married finally was able to have a ceremony or everybody that pushed it off got married. Like, it just feels like with the late seasons and the early starts and the bubble in the middle of summer that there were a lot of guys that wanted to cling to every day of summer as long as they could this year. Um, I think if we get to next year and the week after Labor Day, you're still dealing with like five or six regulars as opposed to the core, that might raise a few more eyebrows. But uh, they tend to, players tend to arrive when leadership gets there. And as you said, uh, we didn't see Horvat, we didn't see Miller until the start of this week. Pedersen and Hughes joined them. Uh, I don't know that it's something to be super concerned or make a big deal out of, but it was enough that it raised a few eyebrows internally that some of that leadership and, and, and a larger group wasn't here um, as early. And listen, on the Russian front too, like those four guys that were here, along with Silovs, uh, maybe some of that is, you know, We've talked. We've heard a lot about visas and getting out of Russia, and guys worried about maybe they stayed longer. Maybe some of them were here all summer. I think, as a matter of fact, some were. But the other thing I think it does is it erases. I was talking to the new American Hockey League goalie coach, Marco Taranius, who obviously spent some time in Russia coaching in the KHL. He's from Finland. About the bad rap sometimes that Russian players get, and he's like, man, like you give these guys ice, and they want to play hockey. They love to play hockey, and I think the fact that. Uh, those guys were all here early as a sign of that. It's also a good thing, I believe, for the group. Uh, it's a good thing for Pod Colson to have, you know, a uh, fellow countrymen who speak the language. I think it insulates him a little bit more, makes him more comfortable as much as he tried hard to learn the language and fit in. Um, you know, it just, I think it'll be easier. And I think the fact they were all here so early, like, it should, it should sort of erase. If any of those stereotypes still linger, that should go take a step towards erasing some of them because, the people that have been around Russian players the most will tell you that sometimes in the NHL they end up in groups because of that common language and people think they're away from the main group. 
But when it comes to getting out there on the ice, man, like they, they just want to be out there staying late. We heard several examples of that from that group, you know, forcing the goalies to stay out late for extra practice and extra drills. They just love to play hockey. What's, uh, what's your impression of Kuzmenko? Um, I mean, it's pretty hard, much like I have to be careful. Like I'm watching a lot of the goalie drills and you can fall in love with how guys move. Like Demko's looked unreal. Um, and so have some of the other guys, but Hey, it's drill work. Like, you know, where the puck's going from one spot to the next. And so, you know, it's hard to evaluate guys. Like I think some of the questions about his speed, you're not going to see that in the types of drills that they're running out there, right? You're not going to see that until we get into live action. So it would be unfair to judge, but I know him as well as that whole group. Like when they were shooting on goalie drills and they were getting, they were allowed to shoot to score. Um, they scored and to the, much to the frustration at times of the goalies involved. So there's some good finish there. Uh, there's definitely a skill set there. The question that I can't answer and that we'll have to see is, you know, when plays moving a little faster north-south and things get a little more dynamic and a little more high pace, um, how does that skill translate? Is he able to hold on to pucks the way he showed and, and move the puck and finish chances the way he showed in some of those drills it clearly did never you know can't say that it translates one for one but it has been fun to watch maybe not from a goaltending standpoint um but in terms of you know the way they finish some of those drills there there's definitely a skill set there that is exciting if it translates woodley appreciate the time as always thanks for this yeah make sure you pick up a new stick while you're there reach <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, it's Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah, Canuck Central, uh, with the uh, Kid Tech Studio on the road here at Andrew Sherritt Limited uh, over by uh, East First and Highway 1. Come check it out. There's a big Milwaukee setup, um, and uh, they've got some barbecue going as well while you do your shopping. Coming up, uh, Fluto Shinzawa. Did a piece in The Athletic with Jim Montgomery, who, uh, former Dallas Stars coach, uh, was with the St. Louis Blues last year on Craig Berube's bench, mm-hmm. is taking over for Bruce Cassidy. And it was a really uh, insightful piece on how Jim Montgomery plans to make some tweaks to the system mm-hmm. in Boston. And anytime you get an inside look uh, with a coach who's willing to be open about how they want to make some changes... I, I find it to be really fascinating. So we'll uh, talk to Fluto about that and uh, sort of discuss what the Canucks, Canucks might be able to do with their system as well. That's next on Canuck Central.